This is Polly, and I am now going to give you some dates for Chicago Dialogue Therapy Training. It's training for therapists who want to learn the dialogue therapy method, which is the method that incorporates real dialogue plus a number of other features of evaluation and communication. It's for anyone interested in learning couples therapy and especially interested in learning dialogue therapy. Uh, and the first training in Chicago is November 7th through 10th, 2019. The second training is January 30th through February 2nd, 2020, April 2nd through the 5th, 2020, and May 14th through the 17th, 2020. These are all extended weekends, and together these trainings result in about 85 hours of continuing education credit for mental health professionals. You can check on my website to see where the training will take place in Chicago. If you live close to Chicago or you want to make the commute, it's going to be actually a really lively training. And we've taken some time to set it up. And I know there are a lot of people interested in the Chicago area. But I would encourage anybody who's close by and interested in completing the training, getting certified in dialogue therapy, to check the website about the training in Chicago. Welcome to Enemies from War to Wisdom. Why do we need enemies? From intimate relationships to politics, tribalism, and community, we cannot seem to stop dehumanizing each other. Chronic conflicts in our families, societies, and nations seem inevitable. In this podcast, we analyze human hostilities from the most mundane to the most sophisticated. We apply psychology, psychoanalysis, art, spirituality, and relational theory in conversations about belonging and othering. Each program reaches for a fresh wisdom that shows us how to step back from creating enemies in our lives. I'm your host, Jill Abelock, a book artist, end-of-life doula and spiritual caregiver, and mindfulness meditation teacher. I'm here with my co-host, Polly Young Eisendrath, who is a psychologist, Jungian analyst, author, and speaker. We approach our ideas, each from our own worlds, but always from the spirit and teachings of Buddhism, of which we are lifelong practitioners. There are now many studies that demonstrate how successful white women will undermine other high-status women instead of sharing resources, praise, or support. If you are a working white woman, especially if you are in a position of leadership or management in a stressful setting, you have probably noticed that your fans are not other white women around you who are also trying to be successful. Traditionally, white women have relied on veiled competition with each other, giving the illusion of being less aggressive than their male counterparts. And so they may be shocked when they arrive in positions of power that they are more opposed and undermined by women like themselves than by men. The mother-daughter relationship is the most unconscious and often the most competitive relationship in the family, especially among white families of means. This podcast will look at the challenges that women now face in the workplace and on social media in regard to competition between women. 
It will take the position that black and brown women function differently from white women because they have not traditionally set their sights on marrying as a means to financial security. In this podcast, we will unpack the problems of white women's lack of support for each other's prominence. Well, here we are, two white women talking about (laughs) supporting white women's prominence. (laughs) Thanks, Jill. Well, thank you, Polly, for having me. So, you know, this, this topic, I was very wary about taking on. It was not something that I thought about it many times before I decided to write it up. And I think the reason that I decided to write it up right now and actually talk about it is that I see women in many situations in which they are in leadership, management positions, in competition with each other. And I have noticed from working with them in therapy and then being a white woman myself in various leadership positions that that they lack the support of other white women mm-hmm. for their prominence. And when I say white women, I don't mean that this problem is exclusive to white women, mm-hmm. but that I think that there is something about the power situation and the competition situation among white women that's a little different than among women of color. Mm-hmm. And I do feel that that specifically has to do with the way in which White women, particularly white women of means, were looking to be supported by a husband as the means to survival in Mm -hmm. their lives, and then had to compete with other women Mm -hmm. for the available men at some critical point in the reproductive Mm -hmm. period, you know. Now, why is that exclusive or more more prominent in white society as opposed to for black or brown women. So first of all, let's make it really clear. I'm talking about North America and, uh, you know, my experience. I really don't have statistics or even data on this, but just life experience that, you know, growing up in North America, I grew up in a working class situation in Mm -hmm. Akron, Ohio. And what I, I think is the case is that Women of color were often more often the breadwinners themselves in their families. They were supporting the family and that 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 situation kind of probably was a result somewhat of Jim Crow laws, but probably going back even to slavery in this country. The women were often the people that kept together the families. And then in my own experience of women of color who have come to this country, and again, this may not be true in their native countries, but they're often also in positions of leadership and power themselves and mm-hmm. not depending on a man to support them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've read a little bit about Chinese women in this regard, that they also assume they are going to make a living. They're not going to be supported by men. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is something, maybe it's even distinctive of the baby boomer generation, of which I'm a member, and then I'm sure earlier generations as mm-hmm. well, but it might have ended you know, by about the millennials or so, 
where women were competing with each other to get husbands coming out of their teenage years Mm -hmm. in order to actually get their survival or their support. Mm -hmm. I myself wasn't that way because my mother worked in a factory and she did actually counsel me very clearly not to depend on a man for Mm -hmm. my income, Mm -hmm. but to, uh, you know, be able to support myself financially. But I, I see as I've seen women in therapy over time, and I've seen the framework of competition among women, I've seen this kind of undermining mm-hmm. of other women's prominence, resources, accomplishments, and so on, mostly, you know, among more privileged white women. Mm-hmm. And so because I grew up around people of color and went to their homes and was really good friends with African-American girls particularly, but boys too. But I did see the role models there being strong women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my some of my role models were black women, including Tina Turner, who was probably my biggest role model for many, many years. I think of this as a white, as a white woman problem. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure that's entirely fair. I don't know. It's probably to some extent a stereotype. Mm-hmm. But it's been my experience in my life that it is white women of prominence and privilege who undermine each other mm-hmm. more than other kinds of women or men mm-hmm. with each other. I remember when the book Talking 9 to 5 which Deborah Tannen Mm -hmm. wrote from her research on how men and women talk in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And she didn't really distinguish women of color from white women. But what she found is that women talked in this kind of caring, sharing, bearing their soul kind of thing, where men did what she called boasting, toasting, and roasting. Mm -hmm. And she found that men would not just boast about themselves, but they'd boast about other men. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't just toast themselves, but they'd toast other men. And they would roast other men, too. In other words, they they would publicly both chide other men Mm -hmm. and boast about other men's accomplishments. Mm -hmm. But women didn't do that. Women would, they would bear their souls to each other and they would do this sharing and caring stuff, but publicly they didn't, they didn't promote each other. Mm -hmm. Or themselves, it sounds like. Or themselves very much, yeah. So, you know, consequently, they weren't as visible in the power structure. And I can't remember because I read the book a long time ago, whether she talked about this kind of veiled competition. But when you look at the research, what women do is talk behind each other's backs. Mm -hmm. So they don't speak to each other about their concerns, but they'll talk about each other behind their backs. And so they can't have a system of trust then if they're in positions of power. Mm -hmm. But men tend not to talk behind each other's backs. They tend to go directly to, to have the conflict directly, mm-hmm. you know, and so... So conflict avoidance as a pattern in women that creates this veiled aggression. Yeah, the kind of hiding mm-hmm. of your aggression. But then also the uh, kind of thing that we were talking about in the earlier podcast of envy. Right. Women often will cut each other down. They'll actually either slightly or completely undermine mm-hmm. somebody else's resources and power and maybe beauty um, in the presence of others. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they'll do it behind that woman's back, but sometimes they'll do that in the group, just mm-hmm. cut somebody down. And again, that's not 
a habit of men. They might tease each other, like the roasting part. Mm -hmm. They might actually make jokes about each other, but they don't do it in a way that really just kind of cuts the other person down. So these habits that I have found in working with, I'm in almost all female-dominated organizations. So all of the psychotherapy organizations, training Mm -hmm. groups, Mm -hmm. psychoanalytic groups, and many of the Buddhist groups Mm -hmm. that I participate in have women leaders Mm -hmm. and a majority of women and like, and sometimes a huge majority, like they're, you know, in among 25 people, there might be two men. Mm-hmm. So it's very male minority. Mm-hmm. And I have found that it's, it's been difficult to work with women in power in a straightforward way, both in terms of actually handling conflict, supporting each other's prominence, mm-hmm. coming up with, you know, let's say a method to mm-hmm. support each other. And also supporting each other's successes, mm-hmm. joys and happiness, and so mm-hmm. on, you know. And so I have wondered about that because I've, I've seen that also in working with women in therapy and seen that they've often, women have often done better under a male leadership or a male boss than they do under a female one. Mm-hmm. Doesn't evoke the kind of resentment and envy that a woman boss would would evoke. Right, apparently, or also women just feel more fairly treated by the men that supervise them. Mm -hmm. They don't feel that they're being talked about behind their back or undermined. And again, this is not, you know, true across the board. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you probably know that there was a lot of research that was done about middle school girls. Mm -hmm. And again, looking at kind of the mean girls, Mm -hmm. or the the way girls handle competition versus the way boys handle, like boys are often into athletics and team sports where they actually compete in a pretty much of a structured way. Mm -hmm. Whereas women, uh, girls have cliques, Mm-hmm. And they compete in ways that are less formal and more undermining of identity. I was just listening to an interview with Jonathan Haidt about research on adolescent girls right now in the United States, and the suicide rates have climbed like tremendously. Like, like I don't know, I can't remember whether it's two hundred percent or three hundred percent suicide among middle-aged girls, mm-hmm. middle-aged, middle-school girls has, you know, increased tremendously. Mm-hmm. And because it's because of the social media in relation to this kind of backbiting. Right. So social media provides a means for the natural tendency, it seems, that women have to operate sort of surreptitiously. Right, right. And and go behind somebody's back right. and, and then expose that girl's weaknesses or right. say something about her. And so anyway, the research that was done some years ago, and, and uh, the psychologist Sharon Lamb from Vermont here did some of the research, showed that, that white girls in middle school, junior high school, you know, kind mm-hmm. of in that period, let's say sixth to ninth grade in that time, were more undermining and aggressive in their competition with each other than African-American girls were with each other or even between them and boys or between them and even white girls. So that white, what white girls were doing was that kind of hidden 
warfare, you might mm-hmm. say, under the table, mm-hmm. going after each other, undermining each other, and not supporting each other. And that that you can even see when you look at the research, you sort of see the forms of speech and interaction that can carry over into adulthood mm-hmm. in the way that those girls will be treating other women mm-hmm. later. What I do remember about the research that I, that I read at that time about African-American girls in middle school is that they would fight more openly, both for their own rights, for their strengths, and against others. Mm-hmm. So they weren't doing veiled mm-hmm. you know, sorts of aggression mm-hmm. under the table, backbiting and so on. So you know, an African-American girl would just go right at it and say why she didn't like something or what she wanted for herself or whatever, whereas there would be this other kind of relating what I'm calling kind of veiled competition among white girls. Right, for what might be perceived of as a sort of fixed reward or possession, you know, which originally you said was a white husband Mm -hmm. who would then provide for her. And Mm -hmm. it reminds me a little bit of the analogy that you brought up in the previous podcast, which was that if you live in a nice house, so you're talking about girls Mm -hmm. who are living a pretty privileged existence, but if you live in a nice house and you perceive that all of the other houses in your neighborhood are nicer than yours, then that gives rise to envy, which gives rise to hatred and the desire to destroy what you perceive you can't have. Yes. So it seems like what's underlying that is 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 something very similar to what we yes. discussed before. Yes, yes. And it's interesting if you say, if you live in this kind of house, I suppose if you're, particularly if you're, you know, in the middle school, high school age, you're living in a certain kind of body. Right. You know, you live in this body, and that body maybe at that time of life is particularly important too right. because it's going to be used as the means to get this guy, this husband, this supporter. And again, back in my growing up time, and certainly I think in the growing up time of my mother, although she came at it differently, but the the idea was, you know, you have to attract a man. Mm -hmm. It's not like men are going to necessarily want you. I mean, I always had this weird feeling like it's like when you put out honey to attract flies or whatever Mm -hmm. you know it's like you have to put something out there Mm -hmm. to attract something Mm -hmm. I I just never tried to do that but I could see how other girls were doing it Mm -hmm. and once I saw once I got to college and I saw that there was even a routine like in I hadn't sort of I hadn't really looked at it so carefully in high school. Like a bunch of girls making up their faces Mm -hmm. in the dormitory bathroom. Mm -hmm. You could see everybody and what they were doing and how they were looking at each other and comparing what things looked like. Mm -hmm. I think that was the first time I realized that a lot of women smile at themselves in the mirror, Mm -hmm. or at least a lot of white women, I've seen it. You know, so they'll put on some kind of makeup and then smile. I had their never, smile as a part of their makeup. Their, yeah, right. and I had never done that. I, right. I thought, like, why are they smiling? Like, are they happy about that? Or, or practicing. But it was practicing. Yeah. It was like looking at what it looked like when yeah. they were smiling, yeah. you know. So I think the that 
sense of competition. When I, when I wrote the book called Women and Desire, mm-hmm. uh, which is the subtitle is Beyond Wanting to Be Wanted, mm-hmm. it was about the issue of women not being the subject of their own desires, but trying to be the object of someone else's desire. Mm-hmm. And then I did talk somewhat about competition among women. And at that time, I was thinking that it was like competition among inferiors. You know, everybody was going after the crumbs Mm -hmm. that were available. And so they were fighting each other for the crumbs instead of sharing what was available. And I think that I, I got that idea partly from feminism, but also partly from just my experience of women battling with each other instead of supporting each other. Mm -hmm. But now I'm at a different point in life, and I'm looking at it a little differently. I I look at the competition among women, and this, of course, transcends race, as also having to do with the mother-daughter relationship, Mm -hmm. because all of us have mothers, and that relationship is a really difficult and unconscious. I, I, I think of it as like the ocean. Like it's so deep, you can't penetrate it, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it is so deep because you are the same in a way, you know. It's like a mother having a son, there's a difference. And even though that difference is a result of also a development. I mean, probably the male baby does identify first with the mother and then has to disidentify. Mm -hmm. And there has to be a space between them that's pretty clear as an emotional space. And Mm -hmm. they have to check out, you know, what's going on with each other. With the mother and the daughter, there's an assumption of sameness. Mm -hmm. And that sameness bleeds that space through in all kinds of ways. It's it's kind of like the chances of real dialogue are, are slim, mm-hmm. you know, because there isn't that feeling that you have to check, like, what is actually going on with your daughter. It's more like you feel you know. Right. It's a perfect medium for projective identification. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And then manipulation right. through the projective identification. Right. And so then you've got a mother and a daughter who are really entangled often both of them hurting by the time that daughter grows up because the mother may be feeling envious and jealous of her daughter's beauty and youth and position of going into the world. And the daughter may be biting the hand that feeds her and feeling, you know, kind of hostile about her dependency on the mother and perhaps putting her mother down Mm -hmm. just at a time when her mother would have liked some support. And you've got this entangled, sometimes very painful, you know, leaving home Mm -hmm. for the mother and the daughter, where the the son and the mother, the mother may be waving him off and so pleased that he's doing what he's doing and feel his separate success as different from her Mm -hmm. success, you know. And so, whereas the the many women have told me that conundrum of feeling that once they became successful, their mother started to put them down mm-hmm. instead of supporting it. Mm-hmm. You know, the mother would be like, "Well, you know, who needs who needs to go on for a graduate degree? You know, nobody needs to do that." Or 
you know, yeah, you think you're so smart about this or that, just wait until this or that happens to you. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of put downs coming from the mother to the daughter can be confusing because the daughter thought the mother wanted her to succeed and wanted her to have these adventures in life. And now the mother doesn't seem to be supporting those. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that mother-daughter enmeshment, the projective identification, this feeling that you know your daughter's insides because they're the same as your insides, Mm -hmm. or the daughter feeling like she resents the mother saying all of these things and taking these freedoms with her. All of that, I think, can lead into the same kinds of dynamics with other women, Mm -hmm. you know, and especially if you're competing for a man Mm -hmm. with those women, and especially perhaps if you've come from a, you know, a nuclear family where the mother and the daughter were competing for the father Mm -hmm. and his attention. Mm -hmm. So all of that can kind of carry over in terms of the way women, you know, treat each other mm-hmm. once there's success. So where do you see the transition happening from the mother-daughter entanglement and the kind of underhanded, undermining, not directly confrontational, but nonetheless destructive relationships that women can have in their younger years, you know, through adolescence, you know, or even earlier, how does that transition into the way women treat each other in the workplace? Well, you know, again, I want to be sure that I say that I'm speaking in generalities here Mm -hmm. and generalizations. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that what I'm going to say isn't true in every case. And Mm -hmm. yet I find again, working with women in therapy. And I've worked, of course, mostly with white women, although I work with women of color also. But most of the women of color that I've worked with in therapy also have education and success and Mm -hmm. so on. And so there's a way that that everybody I work with is in in terms of the mostly the women that I see because I've seen men who have had more simple careers not like as a mechanic or a farmer but the women that I see tend to all have pretty professional lives mm-hmm. so I'm going to speak in the generalities mm-hmm. <laughs> that that I I feel are true for the people that I've seen in therapy that I think the underlying mother-daughter relationship breeds a lot of envy Mm -hmm. and that initially it's the daughter's envy of the mother and the desire actually to have the kind of power, beauty, and other things that the mother has Mm -hmm. that the daughter may identify with as well. Like I'm like her, I'm going to be like her. Mm -hmm. And, And that kind of, that sort of attack on the mother's power I think is in the daughter you know Mm -hmm. particularly as the daughter might move into a romance with her father just sort of feeling that the mother is not all she's cracked up to be you know Mm -hmm. that's the way the daughter feels and as that envy translates then eventually I believe the mother envies the daughter I believe she envies the daughter's youth her possibilities in the world and so on and the two of them may never deconstruct that envy and they Mm -hmm. may never get to a place where they don't function 
in a way that seems to put each other down, mm-hmm. you know. And then the daughter going out into the world at that time has sort of a confusion about her identification with her mother. If her mother, for example, hasn't succeeded at achieving anything in her life mm-hmm. or feels depressed about herself, then I think the daughter can also look at her mother and think, well, that might be the way things will go for me. And then if that mother also puts the daughter down, the daughter doesn't feel supported for mm-hmm. her her abilities and successes. I think that daughters then entering into adult life as they have in the past, at least, would then be competing for men. Mm-hmm. So I think that very often what would happen is that their their warmest, closest relationships with other girls would start to be infused with the competition and envy that they felt with the mother. But they would be unable to actually understand that. Mm-hmm. And in the best case scenario, I think that these veiled competitions, this veiled aggression, and this backbiting and under the table power struggles comes from not having worked it out with your mother. Mm-hmm. In the in the worst cases, I think that the overall culture of being an object of desire and needing to attract a man in order to succeed builds something additional into the girl. I mean, it starts to become sort of real, Mm -hmm. you know, instead of just feeling like imagining that maybe your life won't be as good as your, your girlfriend's life. You start to see evidence that you don't wear the same size dress or you can't use that kind of makeup or you don't have the same hairstyle and and so on that there's a way that the culture at large if it's commercializing Mm -hmm. appearance Mm -hmm. and and privileging appearance Mm -hmm. uh, starts to give a reality to that young girl about having to put down her friends Mm -hmm. or at least having that feeling Mm-hmm. of wanting to put them down. Mm-hmm. I just think women have never talked about that enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that there has been a tendency to blame men for women's difficulties in taking over leadership positions or succeeding over time in leadership or succeeding over time in power positions. I think the tendency has been within feminism to assume that men are somehow protecting the positions of power. And I think they have been. And I certainly think that there were all sorts of aspects of male dominance in power positions and also, you know, ways of men using their position to suppress women sexually and abuse them and so on. I mean, no doubt about that. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that was the only thing playing. Mm -hmm. And I think as women have had more opportunities now to play on the bigger fields of power, I actually think our inability to work with ourselves is the bigger problem. And I don't mean that for all women everywhere. But in North America here, I think that in the kinds of organizations I'm in and in the kinds of, um, in many kinds of settings, academic settings, medical settings, professional settings, women have positions of power, Mm -hmm. but they're often not supporting and developing 
other women's power when they have power. In other words, we're not working together. Mm-hmm. We're kind of like, oh, I, I say sometimes like babies in mm-hmm. regard to power. We fight with each other mm-hmm. instead of actually working to promote each other. So I think it, I think the envy theme mm-hmm. starts with the mother, translates into, you know, competition about the body, mm-hmm. can be also competition about what, whether you're a good mother or not. That's like another crazy aspect among women these days, among educated women right. competing for motherhood things, motherhood prizes. And then out into the workplace where women aren't really supporting each other. Mm -hmm. You know, they give lip service. So is there a way of understanding what the difference in the relationship between fathers and sons and young boys in, you know, preteen and adolescence, and then as they transition into the workplace, is there a way of understanding what's different that would be useful? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think that it resides around this issue of, projective identification Mm -hmm. because so all of us come into the world inside of a woman Mm -hmm. you know I mean it could be argued that in the future there'll be some other way of getting here but right now that's it let's just dwell now yeah it's right now it's like we're coming in inside of a woman and so whether you're male or female you're coming in inside of a female Mm -hmm. so you come out and then you have the issue of identification Mm -hmm. That's a very long story, and I'll try to make it as brief as possible. But the the girl baby, or what we now call, you know, female identified child, is the same same. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard to have space and boundaries. It's easier to project right. when you feel like, oh, that's the same as me. Right. The, the male child is coming out of a female, mm-hmm. and it's same different. Mm-hmm. And the male identified child is going to struggle to come up with that difference. There are many ways in which that, that identity is more fragile than mm-hmm. the female identity. Mm-hmm. And so many things have to happen for the male child to feel, I am not mommy. Mm-hmm. But when they happen, there's space between me and mommy. Right. There's inquiry between me and mommy. Space there's being, curiosity, emotional space. Right, and space between you know. me and mommy being more crucial at that point than space between me and daddy, which is well, that's a different well, that's a different ball of wax. So let's just do mommy first because okay. mommy's much harder than daddy. Okay, always for everybody. You must have noticed that. <laughs> you know. So, so yeah. So the space between. Mommy and me, for a male child, it's it's more open. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to ask a question. You don't just, you know, put the applesauce in his mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, with the female child, you could believe that you could just do stuff because you know what she wants. Right. Because you could read her mind. Because you're female too. Because you're female too. Yeah. And I don't know how many women have said, oh, I was just like that when I was a girl you know, about their daughters. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they'll say it about their sons. I wish nobody would ever say that. About anyone. About anyone. Because your your children are always in a different time and place. They've always had different circumstances and different parents. Right, and are arising in a different... Yeah, yeah. on a whole different field. And so, you know, why make it more difficult to get to know them? 
But so the same, same mother, daughter, mother, son, different, father, son. Nobody comes inside of a father. Mm -hmm. Not so hard to get to know a father. Mm -hmm. He's never been the background. Mm -hmm. It's like, I, you know, it's always hard to convey this, but it's like when the father walks into the room, it's fresh. Mm -hmm. There's space. Mm -hmm. Ah, nice mm -hmm. that he came home. You know, or if he walks between the mother and the child, that may feel a little threatening to both the mother and the child, but ultimately it's space, it's fresh because he's separate. He comes, he comes differentiated. He comes separate. He's yeah. separate package. He's never been your background music. Right. And so he's not as complicated a relationship. And so then the father-daughter, plenty of space. Father gets to know daughter. Daughter gets to know father. By and large, again, just, you know, if there aren't any traumas or crises or whatever, there's inquiry. Mm -hmm. Who are you? Mm -hmm. You know, I, having some questions about you. And daughter, of course, looks at father. And father is space right away. Mm -hmm. You know, father is not like mother is like <clears throat> nest, you know, right. caught its mother. Father is, oh, somebody new here. And then the father and the son, there's identification. And there could be projection. But it's not generally an enmeshment of the same sort of the mother and the daughter hmm. because it's the father wasn't the background music. It was the mother. Right. But it seems like the difficulties that men have in their relationship with their father um, are around issues of expectation and disappointment. And those seem to still be based on productive identification. Well, they are, but they're often able to be put into language. Again, let's just go back to the mother and the baby have no language, mm -hmm. but they are in a lot of very critical communication through their emotions mm -hmm. in the beginning of life. Mm -hmm. And that communication, particularly during the nursing period, and so on, the father is not in that. Mm -hmm. He's not, I mean, he comes and goes, mm -hmm. but again, you know, if you, you have to kind of get, it's really hard to get all the smells, all the sounds, everything was from inside of the mother's body initially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's like a whole world there that you're gradually, gradually coming out of and recognizing. And it's a complex relationship. Mm -hmm. The father just kind of, in my view, he kind of breezes in, mm -hmm. you know, he wasn't, he wasn't there from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so he's more interesting in that way. Mm -hmm. You know, novelty is always more interesting mm -hmm. to humans and all the higher apes and everything. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like mother is after a while, just background. Mm -hmm. Father is novel. And so then, yes, there's projection on the part of the father into the son, on the part of the son into the father. There's envy, there's competition, there's jealousy and all of that. Mm -hmm. But there's more emotional space mm -hmm. in which an inquiry can be made. It might not be. There, you know, there certainly are fathers that pound on their sons. There are fathers that disapprove their sons. There are fathers that do all sorts of things to their sons that they might not do to their daughters. Mm -hmm. But again, that emotional space is actually more available because mm -hmm. 
they've never been inside of their father's bodies in mm-hmm. which the father was kind of the whole universe, you know. So, so is there a way that women can create or access a kind of emotional space that will make them less envious of and destructive toward other women. I believe so. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this podcast if I thought we were just doomed to do everything through this sort of dark envy of each other. Right. Um, But let me just go back to the other question that you ask about with boys going forward Mm -hmm. after they, you know, the one thing that I saw very, very clearly with my son and you know, in in watching my grandchildren who are boys as well. Boys do these competitive sports and those sports are, they do have rules. So there are both formal and informal ways to play sports. But the rules give, again, those boundaries, the space, the way to, it's like you negotiate mm-hmm. the difficulties during the sport, after the sport, So you learn how to negotiate your conflicts Mm -hmm. in the sport. Mm -hmm. And you also learn about something called fairness. And you also learn about the the rules of the game. And then you learn about the informal rules. You learn the formal rules and you learn the informal rules. Mm -hmm. And actually that development, I think, serves boys later when they become men in terms of the way they handle competition, hierarchy, success, the idea of a team, Mm -hmm. or working with the team rather Mm -hmm. than just competing against every individual, Mm -hmm. you know. Now, girls play team sports too, but often they're not as identified with the team sport. Mm -hmm. I, I think the idea of a team is a really good idea. And what I see now in leadership environments is that there is a recognition that leadership is a team sport mm-hmm. that you know you have to work with a team and the team has to actually function in terms of working together collaborating and also planning together and supporting each other mm-hmm. and that that team idea i think is inherently built into a lot of male competitions in adolescence for males Mm -hmm. and I actually think one reason why it's attractive and works kind of pretty smoothly for them is because of this issue of simply having more space around their identities if you Mm -hmm. want to call it that Mm -hmm. and also not having this deep envy with the mother Mm -hmm. I think the deep envy of the mother-daughter relationship it creates a kind of a confusion Mm-hmm. about how to cooperate with a powerful woman, mm-hmm. you know, with somebody who is maybe over you or uh, as powerful as you are. And so, you know, how can we open up a space where women could function in a team framework, mm-hmm. given that they might have this kind of natural desire to put each other down, mm-hmm. cut each other down? I, I think it's pretty much the way we talked about it Um, when we talked about hostile dependency and Mm -hmm. envy itself, you first have to recognize you're doing it. You know, you just first have to say, okay, do I really want to talk about this woman behind her back? Mm -hmm. You know, do I really want to spread some sort of enmity 
Right. Among and undermine our team. Yeah. Right. And undermine, you know, maybe I disagree with her in some way. Maybe I need to go directly and talk with her about it rather than talk to somebody else on the team mm-hmm. about her. Mm-hmm. And I think that taking that step back, recognizing envy, recognizing jealousy that you want to compete and so on. Also, using the skills of mindfulness, which would be to cultivate both that equanimity, that is your ability to simply feel your feelings without judging them, Mm -hmm. and to just know that they're natural, and maybe a little tad of compassion, Mm -hmm. you know, for yourself that you grew up with a mother, and it might not have been easy. And then to remember that that woman also grew up with a mother, and probably wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that way, maybe creating the space between you, right. based on the idea that, you know, you each had a mother, you don't know each other's mother, perhaps, you know, and so you could approach each other with respect, mm-hmm. just from the point of view that it's not a straightforward thing for a female person to feel like she has something like a confidence in herself Mm -hmm. that she knows what she knows and that she can move around by her own desires. That's not a straightforward thing. No, and especially not in our culture because I think one of the things that occurred to me as we were doing this is that there is an assumption that's based on a you know, really old societal model in our society. And in particular, when you were pointing out how women of color often have had powerful roles in the family, the assumption in, in our culture and particularly in privileged white culture is that males are are the authority it Mm -hmm. is it's it's hierarchical and it's patriarchal Mm -hmm. and so the notion that a man would have power is not something that a woman in the workplace might like but it's not the object of envy because on some deeper level it seems like that is what she's been trained to believe is the natural order of things. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so having another woman in power then invites her to question, well, why is it not me who has that power? Yeah, that's perfect. That's actually perfect. I agree with you on all of those points. And, And to recognize then that what we might have thought was a natural order or seemed to be a natural order is no longer... Right. The order. And that was a fiction that it was a natural order. It was just the fiction that we were following. Um, And I, and I, you know, I sometimes think we got into a lot of Darwinian fictions in the meantime, you know, sort of that sort of, that sort of sociobiology of Darwinian hierarchies or whatever. I I think that was a whole fiction that we went through. The, the idea that somehow there, we should see the man as powerful or even assume that men are in charge anymore when they're often not in no. the environments I'm in. Right. But that we need to uh, we need to be more conscious about supporting the prominence of women, yes. even though it stirs up really mixed feelings yes. in us, very mixed feelings. Yes. And maybe even sometimes it stirs the shadow of our own mothers who didn't promote us. Right, you know, and whose power we envied. Whose power we envied for a while. Right. And then who envied our power. Right. You know, right. it's like, I think that was for me one of the most confusing things with my mother. Now that I look back at my mother, I understand it. 
so clearly Mm -hmm. when I was actually in high school and leaving home, my mother was, and, and, and even much later than that, my mother was always putting down all of my success and acting like it was trivial. Mm-hmm. And I thought she was going to be very happy about it and proud of it. But instead, she seemed to be just almost like whacking it down. Mm-hmm. And later, later, I realized my mother stopped going to school when she was 13 because she had to work and she worked as a servant in someone else's house. Mm-hmm. And she was very smart and she wanted to go to school. And so as I kept succeeding in school beyond the age of 13, Mm -hmm. it activated so much envy in her. Mm -hmm. And then it was just an uncontrollable amount of envy. She couldn't help but put me down anytime I succeeded by the time I went to Mm -hmm. college and then graduate school and then writing books and so on. None of that pleased her. Mm -hmm. So it was very, very confusing. Mm -hmm. But when I think about how she must have naturally felt about that. She she had seven sisters. Yep. So she and she was right in the middle. It just it must have just stirred up so much envy in her and she didn't know what it was, but she couldn't help but just put me down all the time. Right. Right. You know, and I I don't think she's alone in that. I mean, I think that many mothers function that way, mothers who weren't educated, who didn't have opportunities in their lives, then when their baby boomer daughters moved out into the work world and succeeded, the mother wasn't overjoyed. Right. You know, and right. so I... In I, fact, they were they felt overshadowed. Overshadowed and angry yeah. about it, yeah, you yeah. know, um, and then felt left behind mm-hmm. and lots of things that had to do with humiliation and envy. So I think that to become conscious of these things and to talk to each other about them mm-hmm. and to recognize that there's... No easy path for women to identify, even with their own desires and their own subjectivity, because of the mother-daughter bond. It's mm-hmm. not because of social environment. Right. It's because of the biology right. of coming inside of a woman mm-hmm. and then having to go through a process of creating a space. Right, between which doesn't, the two of you. doesn't necessarily occur naturally. Not at all naturally. Right. I mean, I right. think, in fact, in nature, that space between the mother and the daughter was never intended. The, the daughter was just going to become a mother again. Right. She was just going to fall right into having babies when she's about 13. Right. You know, and so now right. we're creating something different in culture which actually is just so different. Mm -hmm. And we need to be able to talk to each other about the mother-daughter relationship Mm -hmm. and see how how hard it is on both mothers and daughters. And then I think the other piece of this is that we have some sort of romantic idea that women are easily relational. Mm -hmm. And there are ways in which women are more interested in relating, but their ease with each other is not, it's not easy, no. <laughs> you know. Right. They may have ease with men, or they may have ease with strange women, or whatever you know, strangers who are strange. No, I mean, strange who are not women, perceived as not competition. Competition, right. right? But among their sisters, you know, their sisterhood, right. there's not an ease in yeah. in relating and promoting each other's success and prominence. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we need to talk more about it. I know? agree with you, and I think something that you mentioned before. I think the whole notion of space and and the how the skills of mindfulness support that Mm. and equanimity is a really big piece of it and I think that another big piece of it actually is clarity 
Yes. And clarity is another key skill that, that comes out of mindfulness practice. And that clarity is really clarity about your own subjective experience. Yes. yes. And the clearer you are about your own subjective experience, about the envy that you may be feeling, about the resentment or the frustration or the anger, just being able to hold and, and know your own subjective experience automatically starts to create space. Yes, exactly, exactly. Because then you recognize, you know, in the way that we've talked about the snow globe of your subjectivity, your snow globe may be shaken up at that moment. And you're responding with envy and maybe jealousy and maybe the desire to put somebody down. But you can actually work with that snow globe right. and allow the little flakes to settle. Right. And then you see a little more clearly that there's another person out there right. who's having a different experience yes. than you are. Yes. And to be interested in that. And it's not in snowing in their globe necessarily. It may not be snowing there. Right. And yeah. Maybe, but it may not. Right. But you can see right. that more clearly. Right. And then yeah. you can ask a question. Well, how's right. it going for you? Right. You know, but that, I think that the clarity, like you said, is the clarity about our experience. Right. And then we can proceed with this more spacious attitude of interest and engagement yes. with the other instead of moving through these, these uh, self-conscious emotions just automatically. Right, right. Yeah. And reacting. I mean, I, I like to talk about it as reacting rather than responding because reaction to me, and this is my terminology, but it comes out of ignorance. Mm -hmm. It comes out of a complete lack of of clarity yes. it comes from you know unconscious drivers that we're unaware of yes. and again um cl having clarity and having equanimity with what you become aware of in that space within yourself um then allows that space to gain more understanding and to respond more appropriately or, or yes and also just with that you know, I, I often go back to, well, what is love? It's the interest and the returning mm -hmm. of interest over and over again in the other. Yep. The interest, the curiosity, the engagement, and not just protecting yourself from the other person. And that's when you have clarity about what's going on in yourself, you can, within your snow globe, mm -hmm. you can then again, make that inquiry. Yes. And the inquiry of what's it like for you? How's it for you? That again, I believe, is more naturally in the space between the mother and the son, the father and the daughter, and even the father and the son mm -hmm. than it is of the mother and the daughter. Mm -hmm. That's where it's the least available. Mm -hmm. And all of us daughters have experienced that with right. our mothers. So, right. yeah, good. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so soon I will be teaching at the Rowe Conference Center. It's in Rowe, Massachusetts. And I will be offering two different programs. One is a couples retreat program, which is on the weekend of October 4th and 5th, 2019. And that's for anybody who wants to participate. You can check on the Rowe website, R-O-W-E, and then I will be presenting as well a foundational training in dialogue therapy that begins on Monday, October 6th and goes to October 11th. 
That first segment is a five-day program. It's part one of a two-part certificate training in dialogue therapy. And this training program is for any therapist who wants to enhance skills for couples therapy or wants to learn to do dialogue therapy or for non-therapists who want to learn this training in order to become a real dialogue specialist. And we talked about real dialogue on several of the podcasts. The first week of the training is October 6th through 11th, 2019. And then the second week is March 6th through 11th, 2020. March 6th through 11th, 2020. And so this model of therapy based on real dialogue, and it's a structured, time-limited form of couples therapy that draws on psychoanalysis, mindfulness, and psychodrama. It can be applied to couples in conflict and couples who are having especially difficulties with their intimacy, as well as to other dyadic relationships where there's difficulties with repetitive conflicts. Uh, In the training, you'll be learning in lots of different ways through mindfulness practices, dyadic exercises, videos, lecture, intensive sessions, and you will learn about lots of different things, including the nature of personal love, challenges of equality, reciprocity, and mutuality, and the enemy factors in personal love. So there's lots more to the training, but if again, if you check on my website, www.youngeisendrath.com, or if you check on the Row website, you will get the details for the training program October 6th through 11th, 2019, and then March 6th through 11th, 2020 for the full certification. And the uh, couples retreat precedes the weekend before that October 6th date. So I hope to see you there. I always look forward to the training. We learn a lot together, and it's also a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. To continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Patreon page supports Real Dialogue for Opposing Sides live events. Please visit it at www.patreon.com forward slash Real Dialogue, all one word. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies, From War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.